is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Weissman. On today's podcast, we concentrate on the European parliamentary elections held on May 26th, with results many predicted would strengthen the shift in Europe to the authoritarian hard-right parties. The biggest losers across the continent were the center-right neoliberal mainstream parties, but the shift to the right was not as pronounced as feared. Sebastian Budgen, contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, gives us his analysis of the elections across Europe and especially in France, looking at the larger significance of the vote in the context of the failed policies of the center, or the extreme center, as we should call it. We also get his take on the continuing protest and promise of the Gilets Jaunes social movement. And then Kevin Ovenden joins us for a deeper look at the vote in Great Britain, where the upset couldn't have been more pronounced in the wake of the repeated failure by the Tories' Theresa May to implement Brexit. The Conservative Party had its worst result in history, but Labor also lost votes as Jeremy Corbyn tried to bridge the divide between those in favor and those against Brexit. The newly created Brexit party of Nigel Farage took first, with the center Lib Dems in alliance with Scottish and Welsh nationalists and Greens doing very well. We get Kevin's analysis and more when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're going to have a look at the European parliamentary elections that took place on May 26th, 2019. Now, normally this isn't considered such an important election, but this time we think that the results were important enough that it deserves an entire program to look at it. And Sebastian Budgen is joining us right now from India and staying up incredibly late to do so. He's the editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, serves on the editorial board of historical materialism and organizes their very impressive conferences now more than once a year all around the world. In previous interviews with Sebastian right here on this show. We've talked about French politics and especially the nature of protests against the extreme center from the youth, first in the Nuit Debout and then in the Gilets Jaunes social movement, which has now been continuously protesting Macron's neoliberal so-called reforms while facing incredible violence from the French police. But today we're asking Sebastian to report and analyze the European parliamentary elections. So Sebastian Budgen, Welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hi, Susie. Hi. And let's just start with what looks to be like somewhat unexpected results because they weren't as definitive for the the right as has had been projected. And on the surface, the big result is a sharp defeat for the center-right neoliberal parties at the heart of Europe. So we saw a setback for both Angela Merkel in Germany and Manuel Macron in France. And maybe you could begin by just analyzing their own defeats? What does it mean for them and their parties? Sure. Well, I think it's important to start from the fact that, you know, as with all politics, a lot of the analysis has to cut through the interpretation from the mainstream media. And the mainstream media have set up two stories about this election. One was prior to the election, which was that there was going to be a populist far-right wave that was going to sweep across the whole of Europe. And that hasn't worked out exactly the way it was being predicted. There were some very massive victories for the far right in Italy, very substantial result in France, 
and in some other places, but in other places in Europe, the far right and Britain, of course, with the Brexit party. But in other places in Europe, the far right didn't do as well as some were expecting, Denmark, in uh, Netherlands, in Spain, and so on. So that was one kind of storytelling exercise that the mainstream media to, to, uh, told us about before the election. After the election, a second story has come in, which is a big sigh of relief from the mainstream media saying, oh, it's okay. Actually, there was a big upsurge of support for parties in support of the European Union. So we go from you know, one swinging over from a kind of alarmist, hyper-alarmist account to a hyper-reassuring account. The big story, I think, is that the center-right parties, the traditional parties of the bourgeoisie, of the capitalist class, and the middle class in Europe, particularly in Germany, France, and the UK, suffered very, very enormous defeats, these European elections, despite the increase in turnout, which is an important, interesting feature about these elections. The Social Democrats in most countries, although there are some counter-tendencies to this, also suffered a very big defeat in the UK, in Germany, in France, very spectacularly, and so on. And as I say, there were good results for the populist right in many countries, but not all. And there was a big increase in the vote for the Green parties in most countries of Western Europe. So those are the kind of big stories that they cut against the notion of a big reassuring vote of, you know, liberal support for the European Union, both because, as I say, there was still very substantial results for the far right, and also because the centre parties, although in France, for example, Macron consolidated his support, he came second to Marine Le Pen, mm. only by a point or so, but nonetheless, symbolically, came second. And it's very difficult to interpret the big increase in the green vote as simply a pro-European Union vote. It's a more complicated phenomenon than that, but we'll no well, talk about that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Thank you. And so before we get into another analysis, Sebastian, of uh, you know what the trends are, could you just let the listeners know like what the turnout was, you know, how different that was, say, from previous European parliamentary elections and I you know said at the very outset that this even though it's been in operation now for quite a while it's never been seen as the sort of true governing body with teeth is that correct that's right european elections are generally portrayed as the kind of protest vote elections where people get things off their chest because nothing is really at stake in the sense that european parliament doesn't have real executive power. As we know, the European Union is a highly undemocratic structure, and so the European Parliament, to many people, appears simply as a very expensive talking shop <laughs> rather than a legislative body. So turnouts are generally low, and protest votes are generally high in the European elections. What was interesting about these elections was that turnout had increased. In France, I think it was about 50% turnout, which is higher than the last 2014 elections, and I think that was a general trend across Europe. And interestingly, it was also, of course, the turnout tended to be increased the most amongst middle-class, more educated urban voters, but even amongst working-class voters, there was an increase in turnout in France, certainly, and I think in other places of Europe, too. 
And there's something else that you mentioned in the beginning that I think I may want to at least, you know, come back to for a comment. And that was, you know, the two sort of what the mainstream media hyped this election as and portrayed it as and as they're coming back now. And I only say that because for an American audience, we're very used to now, you know, the highly partisan news outlets, the Murdoch dominated one on the one hand, and then the sort of what we're calling the neocons, formerly liberal, you know, views on the other with no real outlet for straightforward, you know, the old fashioned kind of BBC just the facts news. <laughs> but And it seems to me that that was also a factor, at least in Britain. But I want to go now to the what you expressed, and we should take up, and that is whether or not this is there's a these setbacks are like a major trend that you see toward the weakening of neoliberalism, or that's a very complex issue, of course, but at least of their parties, you know, what we've, uh, what Tarek Ali called the extreme center, and they literally are center-right neoliberal parties, then they've been dominating for a long time until recently. So, and they have been, you know, the form of stability for capitalist politics. Is this a trend now toward weakening them? Yeah, I certainly think that you can say that the establishment parties, if you like, the parties that controlled the whole post-war dispensation for the last few decades, so the centre-right, Christian Democrat or Conservative or Popular Party, it's called, in Spain, those traditional centre-right parties and the traditional social democratic centre-left parties are in deep crisis. And these elections have shown quite dramatically how much they're in trouble. In France, the traditional centre-right party that, you know, Nicolas Sarkozy, for example, the presidential candidate for all that time ago, got, you know, a pitiful vote under 10%. And you saw the complete burnout of the Conservative Party in the UK. And that, that is a general trend across Europe. And similarly, the centre-left parties in most parts of Europe, the Social Democrats, also got very, you know, historically low votes in these elections. I think it's a bit more complicated than simply saying that neoliberal parties are in crisis, because what's happening is that the centre in many countries, like in France, probably in Spain, in some other European countries, you're seeing a recomposition of the pro-neoliberal parties around these kind of startups. So La France En Marche, marche. Uh, La République En Marche in France, Ciudadanos in Spain, and mm. so on, and attempts to do that in other countries. So there is a kind of attempt to recompose, if you like, the pro-neoliberal bloc. It's a fragile process. And at the same time, some of the green parties that did so successfully at these uh, elections are quite, some of them are quite pragmatically oriented towards agreements with these neoliberal forces. But I certainly think that the establishment parties are in deep crisis, and uh, it's very difficult to see how they're going to be able to recover from it. Well, and also because these have been the parties of austerity for such a long time. And so if they, we'll talk about this in a minute, I want to first deal with the right, and then we'll go back to sort of the center, center to the left, and look at how they relate to really the economic questions as well as others around them that cause people people to, you know, change their votes or change them from their traditional voting patterns. And so I wanted to go next to how big of a victory this was for the growing far right. And you said it wasn't as big as predicted, but on a European scale and really worldwide, we're seeing the ascent and electoral successes of the authoritarian far right. And it's been, you know, something that 
I think have surprised a lot of people, and it's been very characteristic in this period, and we've seen it right here in the United States with Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Brexit, and now Farage, Modi in India, where you are right now, Duterte in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary. And so most people thought that these elections last Sunday would accelerate the trend. And to some extent, the far right, you know, did do extremely well, especially in Italy. And we need to talk about that with the sweeping victory of uh, Matteo Salvini. And to a lesser extent, as you said, with the victory, but a small one, of Marine Le Pen over Macron in France. So these were mixed results, but can you give us your assessment? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's important to be careful about what we say about this because there's a kind of mirror image between the people like Bannon, for example, Steve Bannon on the one hand and Macron on the other, mm-hmm. who would like to portray the whole of European politics as a binary opposition between, on the one hand, you know, an unstoppable wave of populist right-wing forces across Europe and And on the other hand, you know, centrist neoliberals who are holding back the savages, if you like, and the last, you know, protection against them sweeping all before them. So both the Bannons and the Macrons would like to make the picture seem that simple. Obviously, I think it would be stupid to uh, deny that there were some extremely big victories in the European elections for forces of the far right and hard right. The British case is obvious. The Italian case is also obvious. They've completely managed to turn the tables on their alliance with the five-star movement so that the, in the general elections, the five-star movement was well ahead, the far-right league, and now it's the exact opposite that's happened, and the league has also managed to reduce Berlusconi's center-right party to insignificance. So clearly in, in Italy, there was a big victory, and in France, despite the fact that in percentage terms, there was a small decline in the far-right's vote in relation to 2014 elections, because the turnout was bigger, there were still hundreds of thousands of more votes for Marine Le Pen than, than in 2014. So, so there were real important advances or consolidations for the far right in a number of countries. What makes the picture more complicated is that in some of the countries where the far right has just burst through in a very recent period, like in Spain, the Vox Party, which is a you know, neo-Francoist, misogynist, uh, racist party, which did very well in regional and in general elections. They did quite poorly in these elections in, again, in the Netherlands, Gert Wilders' party did poorly. In Denmark, the, the far right did poorly. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an uneven well. picture. Yeah, I was in say Austria, that. yeah, although less badly than some were expecting after that really appalling video that was leaked about their leader trying to, you know, basically doing corrupt deals with a, a fake um, Russian uh, daughter yes. millionaire. The trend still exists towards a growth of the populist far right at the expense of, of the center right and winning in some cases in France, for example, a very, you know, the, the big working class vote of voters, working class voters who, who go out and vote are voting, you know, 40 percent of blue collar workers or more for the far right. So these are really significant results. But the Bannon type picture of this unstoppable wave is clearly not confirmed by these results. And so I guess you'd say I want to move on to other aspects of it. But do you think it's fair to say that this is a momentary surge and that when they can't deliver it, people will go elsewhere? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the far right is not in power in all these countries. The far right is in power in, in Italy. So there, the real contradictions are going to come to the surface, I think, very soon because the Italian economy is, is in a really bad shape and the various promises that they made about standing up to the European Union and so on are going to be put to the test. In France, the far right is, is in opposition, so it is in a more comfortable position, if you like, to act as a, as a protest vote. You know, in the rest of Western Europe, the, the far right is not in power. And, you know, in Eastern Europe, it's a, it's a different. In Poland, for example, it's a completely different kettle of fish. So I don't think that we can say that it's going, you know, it's a flash in the pan and these things are going to be, these parties are going to be swept away again. These are very serious forces that are, in many cases, the only forces doing mass politics. I mean, the, the Front National, or now it's called Rassemblement National, is doing mass politics, you know, like the French Communist Party used to do, and they have real social roots, and they're feeding off a real sense of, even though, you know, it's completely fake, their analysis of the situation, they're feeding off a real sense of disillusionment with the political system and, and some forms of social discontent. But I think that they have their own contradictions, their own problems. They're not united between them. They have lots of differences between different European far-right forces about geopolitics, their relationship to Russia, for example, about economic policy. You know, Salvini and Marine Le Pen do not have the same economic policies. They've had to back down on a number of things, like the Front National, you know, was for a Frexit, was for pulling out of the Eurozone. Now they've abandoned that as a policy. So there are a number of, you know, differences and problems within that camp, and they're divided in the European Parliament between different groups. And if Brexit does go through, they're going to lose, obviously, a very big contingent of their MEPs with the Farage Brexit party people no longer being in the European Parliament once Brexit happens. <laughs> if it ever happens. Okay, well, let's, Sebastian, one, one feature since at least the 80s has been that the traditional so-called social democratic slash socialist parties have become the parties of austerity and the parties where you could say that neoliberal reforms have been carried out. I know we used to say way back then that, you know, conservatives wouldn't be able to directly attack the interests and standard of living of the working class. And it took getting labor or socialists in to put in these kinds of reforms. They did the dirty work. I think it's much more complex than that sort of, you know, appreciation of it. But I think that what we're now seeing all over Europe is the end. Are, are we seeing the end of these socialist parties or is that premature? And I would say that, you know, the, as I just said, the defection of those parties and their move everywhere from any sort of pretense of social democracy has been, you know, they, they are the hardline neoliberal parties. And so the far left, you know, have always predicted that parliamentary socialism would soon die a natural death. Why would anybody support austerity on, you know, as a permanent austerity, even when it comes in this so-called socialist form? So, and would instead, if given the choice, choose, you know, the real socialist sort of party, if and when and where they exist. So can you talk about that in terms of this recent European parliamentary elections? Is the death of these socialist parties premature? Well, as you remember, we talked about a phenomenon of what people call pasokification, so that the same thing would happen to the social democratic parties across Europe, as happened in Greece, where the Greek socialist party, PASOK, was wiped out. 
after it basically completely complicit participation in neoliberal policies. And that certainly sort of punishment, if you like, or return of the letter to the sender has happened in a number of countries in quite uh, dramatic forms. As I said, in France, for example, the French Socialist Party, you know, the party of uh, François Mitterrand, party that has, you know, been the main governmental party of the French left in the post-war period, they got, you know, just over 6% in these elections and that wasn't even you know entirely behind their own banner which is you know an absolutely pathetic result in germany the social democratic party which is in a grand coalition with the christian democrats has continued to plunge downward and the results that they got in these elections were the historically lowest i think they've ever got and they're you know going to be facing some serious issues about whether they continue in this coalition with the Christian Democrats if they want to save their skins. So certainly across a whole numbers of, a number of countries in Europe, the Social Democrats are being punished for their complicity in neo- neoliberal policies. But I think it's too simplistic to say that persocification is, is taking place across the board and that you know, it's just a matter of time before these parties are wiped out. Uh, social democracy has a remarkable... <laughs> resilience and ability to bounce back in Spain, for example, uh, and in Portugal, they have done well in these European elections, partly in the Spanish case by taking a more left-wing image, and in the Portuguese case, they're in government and supported externally by the Communist Party and the the radical left bloc. In the Netherlands, the quite right-wing Labour Party has bounced back in these elections. In the UK, we know that Labour did very well in the last general elections. They did very poorly in this European elections because of the Brexit issue. But So it, it's quite a complicated landscape, and I think it's dangerous to assume that just because, objectively speaking, there are good reasons why social democracy should be destroyed in all the countries of Europe, there are counter-tendencies to that, especially when they tack to the left, rhetorically unable to suck up votes to the left, Podemos in Spain, for example, and they can reconstruct themselves. Now, how long that can last, how solid that is as a recovery and so on are things we can debate. But it would be a mistake to be too catastrophist about this in terms of social democracy. Okay, and we only have about four minutes left, and there's two other topics I really, or three, that I want to get to. So let's see where we can go, Sebastian. First is on the Greens. You mentioned that at the outset that they were uh, strikingly successful in these elections, and people here in the U.S. are not very well acquainted with European Green parties and the place that they occupy in the politics across the continent. The most obvious factor in the green success would be the rising concern about climate change and certainly the climate strikes that have taken place in the last several months. But that's only part of the story. So can you tell us about the greens in Europe and what their success means, especially going forward? Yeah, I think we're going to have to take some time to interpret what exactly the the Green vote means, and we'll, we'll see in the next few months how it cashes out. But the European Greens are a very diverse crowd. So, for example, the British Green Party is, is quite a left-wing party. You could quite easily imagine it in alliance with, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, for example. In Germany, it's a much more uh, moderate centrist party that's happy to be in coalitions with the Christian Democrats, for example. Uh, and then between the two, you have a very wide range. In France, it's quite a weak party in terms of membership, but it's, it's able in these elections, for example, to get very good results. 
And generally speaking, the trend within the European Greens is towards the right, towards some kind of market soft version of neoliberalism with a big green tinge. But as I say, there are some counter tendencies to that um, where there is still a left green identity. I think it's clear that the vote for the Green parties in these elections was a young vote. It was an urban vote. It was an educated vote. And it was a vote that was, you know, very large part molded by the sense of the impending climate crisis, by the new forms of activism that you mentioned, and also by the the crisis, as I said, of the establishment parties, where really a whole sector of of the electorate's vote now is up for grabs in terms of alternatives to the establishment parties. Sometimes, in some cases, it can be radical left parties. In this case, it's the Green parties. In other cases, it can be other formations like Macron in in, in the last French presidential elections. So there's now a kind of floating part of the population that can vote for different forces as long as they're not establishment uh, parties, as long as they're not centre-right, centre-left establishment parties. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Greens are actually going to position themselves in this new landscape. I mean, some of them would like to do alliances with the centrist neoliberals, with Macron and so on, and I could imagine him wanting to split their group along those lines. Others, you know, are genuinely, you know, are very genuine about their concerns for the ecological crisis and and think that, you know, just some version of a green market is is not going to be sufficient. So they're going to be put to the test quite quickly in terms of their ability, you know, to what extent they're prepared to actually buck capitalist system or to what extent they're prepared to settle down and become, you know, junior partners to the centrist neoliberals. Okay, Uh, Sebastian, last two minutes, and really this is a good place to end it as well, and I'm really appreciating your very comprehensive overview of these elections so far. And the last place to go is back to France, and that's the European elections, parliamentary elections, I should say, were bad for all the political shades of the left, of the center-left, but the truly spectacular mass popular movement that we've spoken about here in France is still going strong. It's amazing. It's been going on for more than 30 weeks. You probably have the exact number. And shaking up French politics. They've faced a lot of violence. And I'm speaking, of course, of the Gilets Jaunes. And they also have a lot of promise for radical politics. But it's also very difficult to kind of categorize them, you know, as the sort of, uh, you know, part of the traditional far left or, or what they are. So maybe you can just update us and talk about the promise of this movement and how you see it in terms of, you know, the other questions that really that this this election was about. Right. Well, the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, is is a very important movement, not just in terms of the French case, but also, I think, in terms of what it says about where European politics is likely to go over the next period, because it's a, it's a clearly it's a mass movement. It's a movement which has politicized all sorts of layers of society that are not Uh, usually politically active. It contains a lot of progressive features like desire for social justice and so on. But it's also a very heteroclite movement. It's a very mixed movement. It's a movement in which, because it's a, you know, deeply rooted popular movement, it's a movement in which there is a, a real presence of people who vote for for the far right and far right factions have tried to involve themselves in it and it's a movement even more importantly which is extremely violently opposed to the political system as a whole and indeed to any form of delegation or representation so it does not recognize itself as being represented 
by any political force, and that includes the radical left, that includes trade unions, that includes the workers' movement. And you could see that in the results of these elections, the radical left did very badly out of these elections. You would have thought that in a country like France with these kind of social movements, the radical left would have done well. In fact, it did very poorly in these elections because there is no automatic translation between this kind of social movement in all of its complexity and electoral results. I mean, how people end up voting or not voting is no longer, you, can, you know, even if you couldn't do it simply in the past, but there were some kind of correlations. It's much more difficult to do that now, especially when you have a movement like the Yellow Vest, which, as I say, is founded on a, on a rejection of the entire political system. They, you know, many of them would like to see the whole representative system replaced by a permanent referendum system. So, and, and in, in many ways, this is where European politics is going. If the continued decline of the establishment parties and the delegitimization, if you like, of traditional forms of liberal democracy continue, you could see these kinds of movements in different forms and different shapes taking place across across the European continent. And I think it's very important that we analyze it and think about it quite carefully because, because as I say, it may dictate the, the shape of politics, at least on the streets and from below for, for the next period. Sebastian, tour de force, thank you so much for staying up late and giving us that very good and penetrating analysis of the European parliamentary elections that were held and what it may portend in the future. Sebastian Budgen has joined us from India. He's an editor for Verso Books, a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism, and he is my go-to person for everything French and European on this show. Thanks so much for being with us, Sebastian Budgen. Thanks, Susie. Thanks, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're continuing our analysis of the May 26th European parliamentary elections. Normally not such a critical election because it's a parliament that really can't do very much. And we've just spoken with Sebastian Budgen about his view of what happened in Europe. And I'm really pleased that Kevin Ovenden is now joining us to talk about Britain. And that's gigantic. And we're going to spend as much time as we possibly can on it. Kevin is the author of Syriza Inside the Labyrinth, and he's a longtime socialist activist and a writer in Britain, and he's closely followed Greek politics and society for a very long time, and he divides his time between London and Athens, or let's say UK and Greece, and we've spoken to Kevin a number of times in the last several years. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio, Kevin. Great to be back, Susie. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I think what we need to do is, first of all, get an overview of how the parliamentary elections turned out in the United Kingdom or the UK. And there we saw, like elsewhere, the traditional mainstream parties of the establishment really kind of not doing well at all. The center doesn't hold, as they say. And the phenomenon of newer parties to the right, and some, we'll see how you characterize them, a different form of of extreme center doing better. And of course, in Britain, what's different than, say, in the European election is that Brexit is really the only subject. So given that, can we get your overview? Sure. The, there are some similarities with what happened elsewhere in Europe. As you say, Susie, 
But the election in Britain or the United Kingdom, if we include Northern Ireland, was unique and took place under very specific circumstances because these were elections which until four weeks ago, five weeks ago, were not supposed to be taking place at all. Britain had voted in a uh, referendum in 2016 to leave the European Union that led to a process in which Britain was supposed to have left the European Union and therefore nobody taking part in elections to the European Parliament, which, as you say, is more of an assembly than an actually functioning parliament, uh, it was supposed to have left on, to, uh, 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 on the 31st of March of this year. Now, it didn't, or we can come back to this, because of an extremely deep crisis uh, of British politics, the state, and of the governing class, that this uh, referendum back in 2016 unleashed. So it's a unique election. Uh, what happened was that the uh, party, which is called the Brexit Party, which its previous, in, previous incarnation was called the UK Independence Party, came first. The Liberal Democrats, which I guess would be sort of like the worst or not very good uh, Democrats in the United States, they came second. The Labour Party came third, even though for the last two years the Labour Party has been pushing right up against the governing Tory party. And then we had the governing party came fifth with under 9%. Now, this is the really, really big thing that this election means. I mean, there are several other significant things, but I, I would say the big thing is this. Imagine having a governing party, so one which holds the presidency or the Congress or what have you, that in a national poll gets only 9% or less than 9%. That's what's happened to the British Conservative Party, which is the oldest modern political party in the world, capitalist political party, with a continuous, although varied, history going back to 1832 and is a critical pillar of stability for the British establishment. So that's a, a huge thing happened. Now, it's important to recognise that these were elections in which only 37% of people voted, mm. uh, which is about half the number in proportion of those who voted at the last general election. So it's important not to overgeneralise from that. Right. Because what you had was large numbers of working-class people, both blue-collar working-class people and, uh, and white-collar teachers, administrators, do you know what I mean? Right. Um, didn't vote. Those who did vote were those who'd been more kind of caught up in the idea that Brexit is the issue. Are you for leaving the European Union or against? And what that meant was that the uh, Labour Party position, the Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, which has tried to bridge this um, political and, to some extent, culture war divide by putting forward the, the class interests of the vast majority of people, it got squeezed in the, uh, in the course of this. But that's in an election where the vast majority of people did not vote. So, it, uh, to sum up... Uh, this is a catastrophic uh, outcome for the ruling Conservative Party, and it's led uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, to 
uh, resign as leader of her party and there'll be an election in the coming weeks or a selection. Uh, it's not <laughs> a kind of very democratic process uh, to replace her for so the equivalent of what is the Republican Party. Yeah. It's led to that. It's led to huge political turmoil. It's also led to an acceleration of what's been ongoing attempts for four years since Jeremy Corbyn, who is a socialist, a radical left figure, who uh, won the leadership of the Labour Party, attempts to try to undermine him, to try to use this particular political circumstance to remove him or at least uh, disable him as a uh, as a radical left social le uh, socialist leader somebody right. who i would say for american uh, an american audience is like uh, bernie sanders but only better right so that's an excellent overview and i want i think you know there's a lot to say kevin about this we one thing is that we're living in crazy times and everywhere we're seeing the traditional or mainstream political parties in crisis the financial times in its long read says they're cracking up uh, that's probably one way of putting it um and what it means that um uh, these parties are being destroyed or outflanked by defection to parties that reject austerity um neoliberalism either on the far right, less so on the left, but much of the onslaught, I think we can also say, and this relates to the United States, but also Brazil and elsewhere, India perhaps, is uh, the onslaught by the media, the Murdoch media, and, the, and these kind of boorish, Trumpish <laughs> politicians. And that's very powerful given the dramatic decline in living standards, probably really nowhere more accentuated than in Britain itself since the population voted to leave the EU in Brexit. And that's completely, as, as we said, dominated everything, all political debate and discussion. And, and as you just mentioned, we're going to go into it more. The Tories had the worst showing in their history. And Labour did far worse than it did in the last general election. And you also mentioned he, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been demonized beyond, well, by the mainstream liberal press and within his own party. So that could have a factor there. But as you also said, Theresa May promised repeatedly to deliver a hard Brexit and failed and has now resigned and labor seems weakened as well. So, But I think that probably the best way to begin this, and we only have about 20 minutes, is is to look at the beneficiaries of the vote. First, the Brexit party, uh, and then maybe the Lib Dems, along with the Scottish and uh, Welsh nationalists. Um, it's really curious that we've got this Nigel Farage creating a party, what, six weeks ago? It's got no members, no infrastructure, and it took first place. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, on one level, you don't need uh, membership in an infrastructure if you're contesting an election, which these elections, these European elections, have always been in Britain. Um, an election not of the type which really transfers governmental power or authority, but is... Um, highly symbolic and therefore has always benefited p uh, parties, forces, individuals who want to uh, take a strong stand. It's a bit like, uh, okay, at a general election, I'm going to vote X or Y, but at this election, which doesn't really matter, but I can sound off, I'm going to vote for A or B. So that's important to consider. Uh, Nigel Farage is the Brexit party. Um, he was the leader of the party called UKIP, which also, we should remember, came first in 
the equivalent of these elections, the European elections, in Britain five years ago. So this process yeah, hasn't just jumped up on us in 2016 with the British referendum and uh, the uh, outcome of the US presidential election and so on. It's been something that's been a, a long time coming. And he uh, is of a hard right, I'd say the equivalent would be a hard Republican rightist, not a fascist like those who gathered in Charlottesville mm. and killed a young anti-fascist protester. You know, he, he's tried to distance himself from that. And also what he's tried to distance himself from is the racism which he does believe in, anti-migrant racism, right. uh, uh, Islamophobia. What he said was, you intimated uh, to it, Susie, that... Uh, the government said it would deliver Brexit. It hasn't. There's a democratic deficit. We want the will of the people to be carried through. And he downplayed absolutely everything else. So their manifesto was one thing, deliver Brexit. <laughs> so it's more than a protest vote because it is very much of the right, but it's not yet consolidated. So that's them. The Liberal Democrats are a party which, forgive the language, because I know cause sometimes this might seem insensitive, but my old friend the late Paul Foote, a great mm. socialist journalist, called the hermaphrodites of British politics. <laughs> They're the people who will indicate being left liberal at a certain point and will then attack the left from the right at a certain They're point. They're sort and of like our... They're like our establishment Democratic Party, I think. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's yeah. pretty much it. Um, kind of establishment Democrats without the charisma, if you could imagine that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's really what they were. So, so historically, they've been kind of the default votes for when people are unhappy about things. And also, they pitch themselves as a party which is pro-EU and therefore uh, aiming, and with some success, uh, picking up votes from uh, Labour supporters who voted with a very firm mind for Remain. And this was amplified by uh, people in the Labour Party, which, although it's led by a socialist, Jeremy Corbyn, is still in its uh, parliamentary representation and in much of its structure, very much a child of the Blairite, era, which is kind of the Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton era, if you like. Mm -hmm. So you had people who were of the Labour Party advocating a vote for the Liberal Democrats to do two things. One is to embarrass Jeremy Corbyn and to, to support what is still the establishment position, which is that Britain should either remain in the European Union or stay as close as possible. So those are those two uh, parties. And you know, it might sound a little bit complicated, but, but I think that the, the underlying processes of political volatility, of... Uh, voter dealignment, where people uh, at a particular point can decide to use their vote for a particular, for a specific effect, as opposed to being uh, habitually committed to a, a political party, that that is something which Britain shares um, across Europe, although the British circumstances are specific because of this Brexit question. I want to end with Labour because I think that's kind of the most complex in the next period, but let's talk about what happened to the Tories. And I mentioned earlier that Theresa May faced repeated spectacular defeat in the last period trying to pass her form of a hard Brexit 
And this is really, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, to see why she just kept doing the same thing and then tried to bring labor in to let maybe them take the blame for what would result. But on the other hand, there now seems to be quite a large constituency in Britain for what's called a no-deal Brexit, and the Europeans seem to not even want to take this up anymore. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about how you look at what Theresa May was trying to do and what this complex issue is doing to British politics. Believe me, I carry no brief for Theresa May. She's somebody who made her career on uh, deporting refugees and migrants and creating what she called a hostile environment Mm. for newcomers to Britain. That said, Theresa May's dilemma was something she inherited from the previous Tory leader, David Cameron, and the outcome of the 2016 referendum. He thought that a 30-year a schism inside the Tory party over the relationship between Britain and Europe could be resolved by having a referendum which he believed and in fact told European leaders would result in a 70 to 30 percent vote for Britain to stay in the European Union and that would settle the whole matter. He was what a friend of mine in journalism calls a flash git. He, uh, he, he, he believed he got high on his, uh, on his own supply. And in fact, the referendum delivered the opposite result. And what it meant is something which is very deep-seated, that the main political instrument of big business rule in Britain, which is the Conservative Party, is now committed, and it was committed under Theresa May, and it will be under the next leader, whoever it is, to a policy which 80% of capital in Britain, and the whole of the state do not want. Now, that's an extremely unstable situation. And that's really why Theresa May pressed on, wobbled, tried to seek compromise, tried to navigate it, and so on. And she was brought down by this, as Cameron was brought down by the result of the referendum. And uh, predictions are dangerous business, but I would suggest whoever the next Tory leader is will be brought down, and more quickly than Theresa May, by this fundamental contradiction. I think this is really well put and exactly at the heart of the matter. And I guess you could ask the question, and it's really a question we don't have a lot of time to go into, but just make the statement that it's an incredible thing when the the ruling class, the capitalist class, cannot impose its will on the political parties, or it's failing to do that, and it's failing to do that because of the results of its policies, you know, and economic and the economic crisis and yeah. lack of any solution to it. We're living in a permanent depression. Okay, given all of that, and maybe we don't even need to go into Boris Johnson because I want to get over to the Labour Party and and the particular, sure. let's call it almost straitjacket that Jeremy Corbyn has been in, and that is because there is this thing called Euroscepticism, and then because of the way that uh, Brexit has taken this position on, on immigration, it makes it very difficult for people to take a position on the neoliberal economic policy without also mm-hmm. falling into bed with those who are racist, xenophobes. And Corbyn has done extremely well as an outspoken person for the left of the Labour Party, but he's come under increasing attack. And now the, the Labour Party did much less well. Some have said he should have gone for a second referendum. Maybe you can just sort of put it all into a nutshell about the dilemma for Jeremy Corbyn. 
Well, the dilemma is objective. It's objective in the uh, Labour votes. Uh, of Labour voters in 2017 at the general election, at the last general election, where Labour did uh, very well confounding all the people who thought that uh, the Tories would have a huge majority, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party advanced and left the governing party without a majority. Done extremely well by trying to bridge this leave and remain uh, divide. And on a principled and, at its best, a class basis, understanding the absolute bitterness of many working class people who voted leave, and also understanding the very best reasons why other working class people, particularly white collar working class people, voted remain. And the best reasons were, I don't think this is true by the way, but the best reasons were, is that they, uh, were that they identified the European Union with an anti-racist, cosmopolitan, progressive sentiment. And so he's done his best to try to uh, navigate that. And he's been attacked from both sides. But the principal attack upon him has been from uh, kind of like the Rasputin character. You know, I forget uh, which uh, historian wrote about the, uh, the, the Russian mad monk. But you can shoot him, you can poison him, you can throw his body under the ice, but still he comes back alive. Mm. And this is Tony Blair and the very organised forces um, are around Tony Blair and around the uh, liberal capitalist establishment which has sought to use this issue to undermine Jeremy Corbyn to say that you have to be pro-EU. It's completely dishonest when they say that being pro-EU is being uh, cosmopolitan because all of them are in favour of the fortress Europe policy which is drowning refugees in the Mediterranean, something which Jeremy Corbyn opposes. So it's been very difficult. Now, I think that uh, the two years of this grinding down has had an effect, unfortunately. I think there is a bit of a crisis moment developing for the Corbyn leadership and to the left in Britain. My own view is that it should strike out firmly to the left on an insurgent, anti-capitalist basis on the one hand, but coupled with, and you mentioned freedom of movement and refugees, coupled with saying we are for opening the borders, that is the real, the real liberal cosmopolitan in the true sense uh, position. And that this might not be immediately uh, popular uh, and understood by people, but it is a position on which you can fight. In any case, uh, British politics in the next six months. If you think you've seen crisis and to- uh, tumult already, you've seen nothing yet. Well, let me ask you just on that because it's clear that you know that's kind of a great position for the Labour Party to adopt and will win over probably a lot of young people on it. And maybe that's the reason that the party's membership has surged and it's now the biggest party in Europe. Nonetheless, there is this Euroscepticism, and some are calling for a second referendum. You've said that he's that Corbyn you know, is really trying to bridge these two sort of divides, which are maybe unbridgeable. But do you think that there should be a second referendum? No, I don't. I mean, if the first referendum created a confused expression or the opportunity for a confused expression of anger against the establishment, but one in which, for reasons 
haven't got time to go into, but one in which right-wing and chauvinist forces were more able to benefit than the left, a second referendum would be catastrophic for the left. Because what it would say is to lots of people who voted, particularly establishment, it would say there's no democracy, we kick the establishment again, and the, the forces of the right that have emerged in this circumstance around the Brexit party and Boris Johnson and the Tory party would be much stronger than they were three years ago when actually the equivalent of the Brexit party collapsed after the referendum. So I don't think that's a very good idea for the, the left at all. There's no out guarantee about what the outcome would be. People argue incessantly about what the opinion polls and studies are showing. On balance, what they're showing is that the result would be about 48-52 one way or the other. So in other words, no different from what it was three years ago. I don't think this is a way for the left to go. I think the way for the left to go is to point out that there are now 14 million people in Britain. This is a country of 65 million people. 14 million who are living in poverty. There are tens, hundreds of thousands of people living on the street and children living in appalling conditions which would disgrace even Victorian Britain. These are the things to bring to the centre of the debate, which is what Jeremy's trying to do, it's what the anti-capitalist and activist left is trying to do. And actually, when those things are brought to the centre of the debate, it rallies people. Now, it's not only that, of course, because you have to say it's us against them, but who is us? Ours is people in London, people in my home city of Hull, in the north of England, people across Britain, a multicultural, diverse working class, male and female, people from all over the world, together having more interest against both the establishment, which is for the EU capitalist club, and against the pseudo-anti-establishment, Nigel Farage's and Boris Johnson's. Well, you did it perfectly. And I'll have you back, Kevin, because this is obviously going to play out in probably a messy way. But I think sure. you've shown something that's very clear for a way forward. And I want to thank you for taking the time and staying up late in Athens to speak with us today. Kevin Ovenden is the author of Syriza Inside the Labyrinth. He also blogs. Look his name up because that's the easiest way to find it, O. V-E-N-D-E-N, Kevin Ovenden. He's a longtime socialist activist, dividing his time between London and Athens. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin Ovenden. Susie, thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.